0: join me in first Samuel chapter 2 and if you need a Bible this morning raise your hand and someone on our team will come around and make sure you have one of those and as that's going on want to uh, give you a quick update here before we uh, before we dive in um, some of you may have heard about this but if you haven't I'm excited to tell you that we are sending a team to Honduras here and a couple of weeks. Um, We've uh, been preparing for this for a a little while. We've been um, getting to know uh, about uh, Mission El Paraiso from uh, John and Barb Zeller. If you haven't met them, uh, John is doing coffee this morning and Barb is checking your kids in over uh, over there. Um, But they own a coffee farm in Honduras and uh, I've been uh, working uh, down there for about 10 years. Where are you guys? There you are about 10 years. And um, this is not just about, uh, you know, harvesting coffee beans for them. This has been a a mission, a way to invest in people, a way to help people discover the good news of Jesus uh, by having jobs and and productive work to do and building community uh, on that farm. And and so we've been um, getting to hear that story a little bit over the last couple of uh, of months and are very excited to send our first team down there here in a couple of weeks. This First trip is sort of a scout trip, an opportunity to see it firsthand and to learn a little bit more about what it actually looks like on the ground, and our hope is that this leads us to more trips in the future, that we'd be sending teams down there on a fairly regular basis to be a part of the work that God is doing there. So I wanted to tell you about that for two reasons. One, just so that you know and you can kind of be a part of the story, but then also want to invite you to be praying for the first team that's going down there. There's about five of us going. I'll be on this trip. Uh, we're going the week of spring break. So <clears throat> March 21st uh, through the 28th-ish, somewhere around there. Just be keeping that in prayer um, over the next month as uh, that date comes closer. We'll at some point have the team up here um, both before and after the trip to, to kind of pray and commission them, but then also to hear about what that experience was like and what our next steps might be. If you have questions uh, about all of that that I just said, uh, ask John. (laughs) Um, Or you could talk to me or Kyle over here also knows quite a bit about what's going on uh, on the farm. So any of them uh, would be happy to tell you more about that story. All right, we're in 1 Samuel chapter 2 this morning, but I also want to just kind of create the the context for for where we're at here uh, for just a a moment. Remember that we are in, uh, I think now, the second full week, moving into the third week of our second practice. We're we're on this big adventure this year looking at uh, different spiritual disciplines, what we are calling practices, and we're into the second one, this conversation about fasting. And and, um, pretty integral to this conversation are two things. One, The the season of Lent that you just got to hear a little bit about, and that kicks off on Wednesday with the Ash Wednesday service. Um, But then also that conversation is really happening in depth in our discovery groups. And so just, again, an invitation to be a part of one of those groups if you're not already involved. A great place to jump into this conversation, unpack what these practices look like uh, in our lives. All the information about groups out in the lobby in the Connection Point tent if you want to check that out before. Uh, you head off this morning. Now, First Samuel. Why are we spending time in First Samuel? If this year is about practices and spiritual disciplines, it can sort of feel like the First Samuel conversation is out of left field. Why are we spending time here? Well, last week we started this conversation. I want to reiterate a couple of the things that we said just again so that we're on the same page together as we move through this, all right? The journey this year... All together, whether we're talking about practices or you know, we did this series on giving a couple weeks ago or 1 Samuel. All of this is about what we're calling our ongoing imagination formation. This this truth that our whole selves, our heart, soul, mind, and strength are formed by the story of God. And, and the stories within that bigger story. And of course, all scripture is useful for this process, but 1 Samuel I think is a uniquely good gift to us in this particular moment in which we find ourselves. For a couple of different reasons. Let me list these out quickly for us. One, we want to have our imaginations formed by the way the Hebrews, the Israelites, the Old Testament uh, sort of central characters, by the way they approached history. They were experts at paying attention Paying attention to what was going on in their lives and seeing God's work, God's salvation work in the details of their everyday life. And I think for a lot of us, we can find it difficult at times to know, where is God in this? Is God working in my life? Is he showing up in the details? And so 1 Samuel is a good uh, training ground, I think, for growing our imaginations in this awareness that all of history is saturated by God's presence. That he is with us in these details of our everyday lives. Second, 1 Samuel is contextually fascinating. The story comes at a very dark point in Israel's history. They've spent a, a, a thousand years sort of growing as a people. Part of that was in slavery. Then there was this big exodus from slavery and then this period called the judges where there was just sort of chaos everyone did what was right in their own eyes and so this is the story of an emerging kingdom and it's also in many ways the origin story of Israel's greatest king this man named David and he'll become the central character for us in the second part of this uh, of this journey but it also it also highlights the fallacy of putting our hope in an earthly king. And so it trains our imaginations. What does it look like to live faithfully? What does it look like to be faithful to God and what he's asked us to do even under poor leadership? And then finally, the story of 1 Samuel has so many connections to the Jesus story. It is a Jesus-haunted story. We'll see this week in and week out as we make our way through this book and so it helps us it helps shape our gospel imaginations by grounding us in the good news of Jesus who is our savior but who is also our king he's our good king and he is building a just kingdom all right so that's some background context to make sure we're all on the same page now let's take a look at first Samuel chapter 2 I want to read for you the first 10 or so verses and then we'll make our way through the whole chapter by the time we're done here this morning First Samuel chapter two, verse one. Then Hannah prayed. Then Hannah prayed and said, "My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord, my horn is lifted high, my mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows and by him deeds are weighed. The bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who were full hire themselves out for food, but those who were hungry are hungry no more. She who was barren has borne seven children, but she... Who has had many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and he raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He, seat, he seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. On him he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Last week, as we began this, Uh, conversation in first Samuel we saw Hannah pray and here right out of the gate once again we see Hannah praying last week her prayer was was very uh, raw and emotional very honest right praying her guts out as she talks to God in public but this week we get a, a much more polished prayer This this prayer reads like a poem or a song. It is yet another act of worship on Hannah's part as she gives thanks to God for the gift that he has given her, the gift that she has received. So since this prayer is both very different than the way Hannah prayed last week, but also very rich in in what's going on within it, I want to give us a couple of observations to chew on from this prayer. So the first one is this, Hannah, uh, her prayer last week, again, raw and honest, this one much more polished, but it is still very personal, right? Just in the first verse alone, four times she says, my, 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 this very personal prayer. Sometimes in our attempts to be uh, or to appear that we are super spiritual, we, we don't talk about ourselves, right? We kind of downplay our Experience, But to be in relationship with God, we have to bring our full selves, bring all of us to the table. And this is where Hannah begins this prayer, with her real self, with her lived experience. So it's deeply personal, but it also very much is focused on God. She moves the attention from herself to God very quickly and to the singular uniqueness of God. All throughout the, the song, Hannah points out the ways that she's seen God at work. This is her story-formed imagination on full display. There are at least 23 references to God in this short song. So again, her, her prayer is deeply personal, and yet her perspective is so much bigger than her experience. She brings her full self, but this is not all about her. Hannah has centered God. God, she says, she sees, is at the heart of the action. Now the overwhelming theme of the prayer is what we might call the great reversal, the great reversal of God's kingdom. And if you were uh, a part of our our, uh, Matthew conversation, this should be language that is familiar to you. The reversal of God's kingdom. We see the proud are brought down from their high place. The bows of the warriors are broken. The full go hungry. She who has had many sons pines away. Meanwhile, the weak are made strong. Those who were hungry are fed. And the one who was barren gives birth to seven children. Okay, the reversal of fortune the reversal of the kingdom of God this is a a theme that we also see all over scripture and especially in the story of Jesus Jesus who begins his public teaching ministry saying blessed are the poor in spirit blessed are those who mourn blessed are the meek these surprising heroes of the kingdom of God We see this in Jesus' parables where he says things like this, the last will be first and the first will be last, the great reversal of the kingdom. We see it in the people that Jesus interacts with, the tax collectors and the notorious sinners. And again, we saw this last week with Hannah herself, how God helps those who cannot help themselves who cry out for him, who realize their deep need for a Savior, how they cannot get by on their own strength. This theme is also picked up in another very famous prayer in Scripture. Mary, the mother of Jesus, in processing the news that through her, God is going to provide the world with a Savior, Mary also breaks out into a prayerful song that in many ways Uh, mirrors this prayer of Hannah. Luke chapter 1, Mary says, My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. You can see, again, beginning in this personal experience. Not afraid to shy away from this. My soul, my spirit, my savior. But also very much focused, centered on God and what he has done for her. And then look what she does next. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He's brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble... He's filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He's helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. These are bold, revolutionary words that Mary prays, that Hannah prays. And there's this pattern in salvation history, God raising up the lowly and bringing down the proud, this great reversal of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And it's a reversal which in many ways is the gospel itself, right? This is the gospel story. Not that we made ourselves pleasing to God or lifted ourselves up, but That God came down to us. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The lifting up of the humble. This God who brings something from nothing, who brings life from death. Both Hannah and Mary give testimony to this. Now, one other aspect of Hannah's prayer that's pretty interesting is it's also very prophetic. Out of kind of nowhere, at the end of the prayer, she says this, The Most High will thunder from heaven, and the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Now, in Hannah's context, in her moment, there is no king. This is how the book of Judges ends, which again, chronologically comes right before this. There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. What does she mean? He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. What is going on here? There are some scholars who will argue that this was uh, written in retroactively, that this, is, this prayer is uh, a, a sort of propaganda piece for the kingdom later on and there may be some truth to that but but it should be clear to us at this point that this is no ordinary prayer chapter one hannah prays this very unfiltered raw honest prayer but here we see hannah the artist hannah the the crafter of words this is not a random statement I think this is God speaking through Hannah about a couple of things one there is this emerging kingdom project that will get started in earnest in 1 Samuel chapter 8 and I think she speaks to that but I think even more deeply than that this once again points us towards Jesus towards the king who will one day reign forever, not just over Israel, but over everyone. And so each element of this prayer connects us to this big story that God is writing. It helps shape our praying, worshiping, gospeling imaginations. Hannah, such a rich example for us of a story-formed imagination, And Hannah becomes an even more powerful example for us as we move farther into the story, looking at the rest of chapter 2 now. Verses 12 through 36 begin to paint a picture for us of the broken, unjust, dysfunctional, straight-up sinful uh, spiritual leadership that Israel had at this time. Verse 12 doesn't pull any punches. Eli's sons were scoundrels. They had no regard for the Lord. And and that pretty much is the thesis for the rest of what comes in chapter 2. By the way, interesting contrast here. In in, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 1, there's this moment where Hannah, again, she's praying so earnestly and emotionally uh, um, and just out there in public, so public that Eli is like, what is this drunk woman doing in my temple? Right? And her response to him is, I'm not drunk. I'm not a wicked woman. That word in Hebrew, wicked, is the same word used to describe Eli's sons here in chapter 2. Scoundrels, wicked. Hannah's saying, no, I'm not, an, I'm not a wicked woman. I'm not a scoundrel. But Eli's sons are. Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Now what did they do that was so bad? Well, first... There is this issue with boiled meat. One of the great controversies of any church is boiled meat, right? Now the custom here was for the priests uh, to take some of the meat that was uh, sacrificed. So if you needed to make a sacrifice, you'd go, uh, you'd go to the priest, you'd go to the altar, you'd kill this animal And the priest was allowed to take some of the meat from that sacrifice for themselves, for their food. This was how God actually designed it for them to be taken care of and provided for. But the idea was that that the best part of that animal, the fat and like the filet mignon, that's the part that got sort of burnt on the altar and then the extra bits went to the priest. But Hophni and Phinehas are taking whatever they want. They're taking the best and the fat. And then in addition to that, they're having their underlings, their servants, enforce this. If a person said to them, hey, let the fat be burned first and then take whatever you want, sort of reminding them, this is the way it's supposed to go, the servant would answer, nope, hand it over now. If you don't, I will take it by force. As a result, the sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. No regard for the Lord. Now, Hophni and Phineas are sons of Eli. Eli is the high priest. They are also serving as priests. This was typical for this to be kind of a family affair. And a priest was intended to be a mediator, someone who would help the people and God connect, be in right relationship with each other. They were there as servants, right, these connection points between God and his people. The issue here is not about meat, right? It's not really about the meat that they were taking. The issue here is power. Seeking personal gain above the well-being of the people that you are supposed to be serving. The issue here is also pride. Pride. No regard for the Lord, doing whatever they want to do. Beware of leadership that is self-centered. That is looking to take the fat, so to speak. That just wants to enrich itself. Beware of leadership that has no regard for the Lord. It's a significant warning here for us. Eli, who does many foolish things in his appearances throughout the book of First Samuel, does call his sons out, sort of. Okay, look at what he does. He says to them, why do you do such things? I hear from all the people about these wicked deeds of yours. No, my sons, the report I hear spreading among the Lord's people is not good. (laughs) Not a great rebuke, if you really think about it. But what's interesting is that this comes in response to a report that Eli had heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel and, here's the kicker, how they slept with the women who served at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Pride plus power almost always equals exploitation. One of the the sad, sad realities of our sinful world is the propensity of men who gain power to use that power to sexually exploit women. It's been going on for thousands of years. And it's still a huge problem today in our supposedly enlightened society as the news has made clear to us often in the last couple of years. Am I right? Here's what I want you to hear right now. If you have been a victim of a powerful person who has leveraged that power, that position over you, I am so sorry. My heart breaks for that. This is not how it's supposed to be. This is not how God intended things to be. And God will not let this go unchecked. There is justice, at least in this story. What happens to your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, God says, will be a sign to you. They will both die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and mind. I will firmly establish his priestly house and they will minister before my anointed one always. Now as bleak as this moment is, as dark as this moment is, there is a glimmer of hope here. This hope for justice, but also for a whole different way of being. Now we've seen the contrast between Hophni and Phineas and Hannah, but there's another contrast that we need to see as well between these scoundrels and this boy Samuel, who's going to become uh, our, our next main character in the coming weeks. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy wearing a linen ephod, and a, a linen ephod is basically the robe, the, the uniform that the priests. Would wear. So you have these young men who are supposed to be priests, leaders, servants, acting with contempt towards the Lord, leveraging their power over people. But then you have Samuel, this boy, not even yet a priest, and he is the one ministering. To minister is to attend to the needs of someone else. By definition, it is others oriented, it is a servant posture. And done well, it is about being selfless and sacrificial. As a result, Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and with people. So at this, at this dark moment in, in Israel's history, everyone doing what is right in their own eyes, corrupt leadership, abuse of power, no regard for the Lord, the religious institution has failed. And yet there's still this glimmer of hope. We see the faithfulness of Elkanah and his family to worship. We see the devotion to prayer, the story-formed imagination of Hannah. We see the growing stature of Samuel as he serves and ministers. And then we have this promise, God's promise to raise up a faithful priest, Even in the bleakest, darkest moments, God is working. He's working His plan. He's writing His story of salvation. And here's the thing it might not look like much. It might not look super impressive, but it is happening. It might look like a family from the hills being faithful to worship, it might look like the prayers of a mom. It might look like a little boy in a priest's costume. But God is up to something. Now we've said one of the reasons we want to spend some time in First Samuel is because these 3,000 year old stories, these ancient stories still have contemporary uh, meaning and insight for us. I think we also live in a time of, of massive upheaval where institutional failure is rampant. And it's leading people to uh, this desire for something different. And it's, this is not just a United States thing. This is not just a, a, a church thing. We see it in politics and, and, and business. We see it even in sports all over the place, all over the world institutional failure leading to this desire for a different way. Now in the midst of all of that transition, it can feel like, oh man, the world is kind of falling apart, right? Like things are unraveling and that can be a very disconcerting experience. I've thrown out over the last couple of months several statistics um, about the church in particular, not our church, but just the church, kind of capital C church, and pretty much no matter how you slice it, the numbers are not good. The church, particularly in the West, is in decline. And there's all of this angst, there's a lot of writing, there's a lot of tweeting. There's a lot of tweeting about this. <laughs> and uh, some of it is good and some of it is helpful, but a lot of it is, is, is superficial. And I mean that in kind of the best sense of the word. It's things like, oh, we need better lights and and this kind of music and more social media presence. And, you know, we need to be more organic. We need to be more structured. This kind of leadership, that kind of leadership. Those are all fine conversations. But what is often missed is a deeper pattern of renewal. Now, what I'm about to share with you is, is vastly oversimplified. And I'm stealing from people who are way smarter than me. So just keep that in mind. But there is this pattern of renewal that repeats throughout the story of Scripture and the history of the church. And it almost always begins in a period of decline. In a period where it seems like things are not going well. It looks like everything is coming apart at the seams. But out of that period of decline comes a remnant. That remnant might be one person. It might be a small group of people. But there's this remnant of of people who say, I think there could be something else. I I think there might be more. I think God can move again. It doesn't have to be like this. They begin to experience a holy discontent. It shouldn't be like this. And what this remnant does is they experience this holy discontent is they begin to contend And the way that that this has happened, there's, again, so many books out there about these sorts of movements. But the way that this happens is through prayer and action. And and prayer, honestly, is the tip of the the spear on this thing. But this remnant, out of this holy discontent, begins to pray, begins to seek, God, God, would you move again in this place? And as they contend, this marriage of prayer and action comes renewal. We see this already in the book of 1 Samuel. We see very clearly the degradation and decline of the religious and political institutions. We see the remnant that is Hannah's family. We see the holy discontent that rises up in Hannah that leads her to this prayer, but also to action. She makes this vow with God, right? I'll give you this this child, this Samuel. I'll give him back to you. Her prayer, her vow, prayer and action together which eventually leads to a period of renewal under King David. Bleak moments in the story are fertile ground where God is doing something. Where God is up to his salvation work. Bleak moments are fertile ground for renewal. Last week I shared this quote from Ivan Illich who was asked the question, what's the best way to change society? Is it gradual reform or a violent revolution? Do you remember his answer? He said, neither. If you want to change the world, you must tell a different story. Hannah's life tells a different story. And as a result, she she changed the world. She changed the course of history. She didn't wake up one morning and go, Today's the day I'm going to be a revolutionary. She did not wake up and decide to turn the world upside down, but she experienced this holy discontent, and she contended. She fought. She prayed. She asked. And she vowed, and God remembered her. And it sets off this chain of events that, again, will lead to the renewal of God's people. Now I think if we went around the room here all of us would say that we want to see renewal. We we would want to see discovery flourish. We'd want to see, you know, again the capital C church renewed. But are we truly disturbed by our moment of decline? Holy discontent is not a, a, a mild frustration or a, a, a bit of concern about the way things are going. This is a deep passion. Hannah was so passionate, Eli thought she was drunk. Now, if, you're, you, know, if you don't feel that, I, I don't want you to feel bad. The point of this morning is not to guilt you into contending for renewal. That's not what we're after at all. But... If you look around for any length of time, you will find something. (laughs) You will discover a holy discontent. I've shared this before, but the the stat that wrecks me, that's just been messing with me for the last couple of months is this study that's looking at the resilience of the faith of young people who are growing up in the church right now. And if the stats are true eight of the, for every ten kids that are over there in reunion kids, eight of them will no longer have a resilient faith by the time they're in their mid-twenties. And that just guts me every time I hear it. What is your holy discontent? What, when you see this when you hear about this what rises up in you and says "Ah, oh, it should not be like that it doesn't have to be like that and then what does it mean to contend what does it mean to contend well first it means that we pray right we pray our guts out like hannah did We pray for God to move. God, remember us. We pray for our church, but we also pray for the larger church. We pray for our friends, for our neighbors, for our coworkers. We pray for people to respond to the good news of Jesus. God, do it again in this place. So we pray, and then we live a different story. And this is where our practices come into play yet again. Sabbath, fasting, solitude, prayer, all of, these, uh, all of these disciplines are not just nice things that we do to be more spiritual people. These are ways in which we step out of the dominant story and where we allow ourselves to be formed by God's story. And then finally, we serve, we minister. Through serving, we we further the mission, we meet tangible needs, we become a living expression of the good news of Jesus. How are you contending for renewal? Maybe another way of asking the question is is this. Is your prayer, your practice, your serving, is it out of duty? Is it out of this sense that like, well, I guess this is just what I'm supposed to be doing? Or does it come from a place of contending? Contending from a holy discontent. Now one one word of caution here, renewal is certainly a a hope and a desire, but we cannot manipulate God into moving. But we can contend. We can fight. And and my hope for us as a church is is not that we are uh, the coolest church or that we have fancy lights or certain type of music or whatever, my hope for discovery, my prayer for us, guys, is that we would be a remnant that contends for renewal in this place. Would you pray with me? Father God, we are so... Grateful and and humbled by the example of Hannah. In a moment when everything around her appeared to be failing. She was unable to have children. The religious institution was working against her. She was bullied by her rival. From that place, she praised this Just honest prayer. And she makes a vow. And God, we we are so grateful for the truth that you remembered Hannah, but also that you remembered us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so God, we, we bring all that we have, all that we are now to you. And we contend. God, would you awaken something in us? Would you renew us? That we might be good news to those around us. Would you give us a heart to pray, to tell a different story, to serve in such a way that people are drawn to you? And God, as we contend for the good news of Jesus, would you remember us? And would you move here in Davis, on campus, in Yolo County, in California? God, would you move? Would you do it again? We pray this in Jesus' powerful name. And everybody said, amen. We're going to close the way that we... Close our gatherings each Sunday, singing a couple songs and taking communion together. I'll invite the connections team to come to the the tables. They'll be serving us communion again today. And so, in a few moments here, when you're ready, I just want to invite you to the table. When I was growing up, and still really to this day, when my family gets together, for us, the, the dinner table was a place where we would gather and we would contend. We'd share about our days, we'd argue, we'd debate, we'd illuminate one another with our great ideas on how to fix all the problems of the world. <laughs> but it was at the table that we would have those conversations. And in the same way, each week when we gather here on Sunday mornings, the focal point, the highlight for us is the table, where we remember what Jesus has done for us in his death and his resurrection. Where we receive, again, the grace uh, of of what his death and resurrection means for us. Right relationship with God. Eternal life. These good gifts that God offers us. But I think it's also a reminder that it's at the table that we contend. That we can bring our full selves, have this conversation with God. And and ask him to move. Move. Maybe for you this morning, that movement needs to happen in you. That renewal needs to happen in you. Bring that to the table. Maybe you've uh, fallen into a place of of apathy. You need to ask God for that holy discontent again. Bring that to the table. And then maybe you've been kind of sitting on the sidelines and and, and this morning is an opportunity to say, I'm in, I want to contend for what is good, I want to contend for the good news of Jesus, for Jesus, for his name to be great in this place. Whatever it is this morning, I I encourage you to bring that to the table, to receive this grace, this good gift, and to begin a conversation with God about what contending looks like for you.